I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And welcome to Montalino Mama. Welcome back, everyone. We have with us today Deandra Moores, a social worker, psychotherapist, bilingual advocate, and blogger based in New York City. Uh, her blog and Instagram account, Bilingual Playdate, support bilingualism via connection prompts, play ideas, and cheat sheets. Uh, all of her materials are super practical and uh, help parents think about small ways to bring their language and culture into their daily routines. So uh, welcome, Deandra. We're so happy to hear from you today. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. So, so can you just uh, tell us what got you interested in creating a platform like Bilingual Playdate? Did it come from your experience as a social worker or was it kind of a separate path, your personal life? How did this all happen? It's actually like a mix of all through all, everything. Like I feel... Um, <laughs> So I, yeah, it's like a mix of everything. So I think about like now when I reflect on it, like what got me here? Um, I see how the road was like paved for me to get here. So um, growing up, I grew up in the Dominican Republic. I am the daughter of two Spanish-speaking parents, Dominican parents, um, who worked really hard for myself and my siblings to become bilingual. And um, so that kind of like start, that's like my starting point. And then um, in navigating life, I ended up pursuing a career in human services, which then led me to social work. And I, I, my, one of my first jobs as a licensed social worker was for an agency in New York City that works with parents and advocates for them when it comes to their educational rights. And so my project um, and my work there was with immigrant parents and their children. And it was called the Immigrant Students' Rights Project. And that's my first kind of like, other than in my personal life, navigating bilingualism, that was my first like starting point where I realized the need for education, the need for advocacy, the need to speak up when it comes to bilingualism, bilingual parenting, especially if you're an immigrant, first generation children. And I ended up, um, I loved, loved, loved working with this agency, um, Advocates for Children, Children of New York, if anyone is in New York City. And um, I left that job um, because I am moving upstate to Syracuse, New York with my husband. Okay. And that's where we're raising bilingual kids, actually. Okay. Um, but we're visiting my mom. But it's fine. We're visiting my mom in New York City right now, so it's a little bit confusing. Okay. Um, so, so yeah. So that kind of like got me started. Um, but then I, I didn't. I knew that I was always going to raise bilingual children. We just never knew how we were going to do it until we became parents. And, and so I think that while I was like passionate and had that professional background. It wasn't until I became a mom that then I was like, okay, well, how am I going to do that? Because now I am not living in New York City. I don't have access to Spanish Spanish language opportunities. I don't have my mom close to me. I have to do this on my own. And so that's kind of how, and then the pandemic happened. And so that's kind of how Bilingual Plated came about. So Deandra, you touched on it uh, when you talked about your partner and you guys became parents and then had the conversation of how you're going to raise your kids bilingual. Can you tell us more about your home? Who speaks what language with whom and all that? Yeah. Um, so my husband, Brandon, he um, 
had five years of Spanish, like everyone in the U.S. from from high school. And so when we met in college, he knew I was a Spanish speaker because I would call my mom and he always would be like, oh, whatever, you know, she's speaking Spanish. Um, and he knew like and then when he communicated with my like he knew like basic Spanish, but didn't use it like as frequently. There was no need. And we lived upstate New York. So I so in our home now. Brandon is a full-time Spanish speaker to our children. I speak full-time Spanish to our children. And then between oh, us, yeah, yeah. So he, so when we decided that this is the path that we were taking, um, we started with one person, one language, that language strategy to raise bilingual children. And then eventually we were using so much Spanish that it turned into minority language at home or target language at home. And um, we also, have really really focused on Spanish for the first three and a half years of my oldest and now he's like immersed in preschool so now he's getting more English input that way but we still continue speaking Spanish at home so that way we can sustain their his bilingualism and your kids are how old so I have a four-year-old a newly four-year-old and I have a two-year-old okay what language do they speak with each other if anything. Spanish. Cool. A lot of Spanish. A lot of a lot of things that are being said. It's very, very funny to hear them establish their relationship. Um, and my four-year-old is very aware of, of his bilingualism and what our language plan and why we do it. He also is aware like what my job is and like what I do and how I help families. So he always he like holds us accountable. Like the other day I pronounced the name of his show with an English like accent, like in English. And he said, no, mommy, tu dices roque, not rocket. <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, oh my God, that's so funny. But he was like, um, but it was so funny. Like he pointed that out. He's like, rocket is in English, roque en español. And I was like, oh, that's so funny that he like even says, like holding me accountable for the, com the communication that we have with each other. So that's how aware he is. Yeah. Um, now, can you tell us a little bit more about your platform bilingual playdate and kind of what is available on there and if you have any kind of favorite um resources for parents that you want to highlight yeah oh my gosh it's so hard okay so so bilingual playdate is a platform for parents to come together talk about bilingual parenting but really our focus is so i my um the population that i serve is spanish spanish-speaking parents um, whether they are Spanish and English or Spanish and something else. But basically, Spanish is the main focus of my account. Um, I'm trying to support parents. A lot of the parents that follow me are non-native speakers like Brandon. So it's kind of like I'm serving Brandon too. And so one of the things that I found when I created Bilingual Plated is that one of the the things that one of the blocks or one of the obstacles for bilingual parenting in Spanish is that at some point when you live in the U.S. so long or when you're a first generation or a second generation child, you have more connection to English as in like English rhymes, English music, English um, vocabulary when it comes to connecting with children. And so my platform really focuses on um, bridging that gap and providing cheat sheets, which are visual vocabulary for parents to use in their homes as a means to up their vocabulary wherever there are gaps. 
And then, um, and that's kind of like, that's my, my favorite, favorite resource that I post and it's a free resource. I just post them and um, you have access for, for to it forever. Um, as long as Instagram will have me. And <laughs> you, never know. you never know. And um, and then another side of bilingual plated is raising that awareness because I think sometimes people paint bilingualism or multilingualism as an easy thing to do. And when you're in it, you realize that there are a lot of things that you have to navigate, wouldn't have to navigate if you weren't raising bilingual children. And so my other, the other side of my platform is a lot of advocacy. And that's where kind of like my passion and my professional background comes into play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, obviously follow your account and I see the cheat sheets that you post and you do like seasonal um cheat sheets like around valentine's day i just saw one um and even if you don't need the vocabulary help it's just a good reminder to talk about those things in the target language because we get so caught up with you know work and cooking dinner that and you use the same vocabulary every day it's just a good reminder even if you you know don't need help with the vocabulary to to incorporate a variety of vocabulary with your kids yeah, and I actually really love that when I post the cheat sheets, there's always other people that engage and say like, oh, I didn't know that that was a word for that. I actually grew up saying this. And so it's also been a really nice way to normalize. Like in English, there are obviously things that we say in New York that they don't say in Charleston, South Carolina. And so it's been very nice to have a visual representation of the many ways you can say something in Spanish and how all the variations of Spanish are equally beautiful. And it's been, um, and so that's what I like about the Chi It's like a, it's like a conversation starter about how diverse language really is and how rich it can be when we know that it that you can say a word, but it can mean something else to someone else and they use a different word. And then it's like a really cool exchange of information. Um, and so I really, really, really enjoy posting them for that reason. Yeah, especially in the US for our kids that grow up speaking Spanish, that they don't grow up speaking the same, you know, Dominican Spanish that you did. They grow up speaking every variety or being exposed to every variety that is spoken in the US. So they have to be used to that. <laughs> Yeah. 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 This is really funny. My son just came um, home yesterday and he's going to a dual immersion school and his teacher is Puerto Rican. And he just literally told me it was so cute. He's like, Mama, you know how you use the word bonito? They don't they don't do that. They just say bello. So <laughs> bello. And he's just like, it sounds so much better. Can we use bello for now on? And I was like, sure, we can. But he was just like, oh, it's so funny. <laughs> That's so cute. I love that. I love that. I think that that like enriches kids you know awareness of the world and culture and I love that you know that being able to put that two and two together and be like oh my mom doesn't use that word that's so but I like this word better is is it okay if I use this word instead and so kids in the U.S. definitely get more exposure to kind of like a mix and blend of Spanish and I think it's so beautiful and it it's not going to hurt them and I think sometimes people try to police or like maintain Spanish in a certain way and it really doesn't have to be you know because at the end of the day we're 
we're wired to connect with people. And I think that that's what my, my platform is really, really about. It's like a connection is the heart of bilingualism. And if you're in our space, if you're in that community, we're wanting to connect and we're wanting to connect about language and your family and how you're bilingual parenting, because it doesn't have to be one specific way. You can do it however works best for your family. Yeah, for sure. There's one story in particular that you have uh, an Instagram called No Sabo. Can you tell us more about this story and what it means and why it matters so much? Yes. Okay. So um, I feel very passionate about this. There'll be a lot of more information about No Sabo kids. But in the U.S., there is a... Because our kids grew up in the U.S. and they don't have the same Spanish um, input that I did, for example, in the Dominican Republic, their conjugation, which is also actually normal, it happens in Spanish-speaking countries too, but their input is less. And so sometimes some kids come home and will say something that's not right, like it's not conjugated right, you know? And so one of those things that that we see is no sabo. Like instead of saying no se, they say no sabo, which is normal because no sabo is an act. It's like a not a not a. It's an irregular con, uh, conjugation, and so kids don't know that when they're little, and it's part of language development. It's like a normal part of. But some people find it funny, and they'll poke at children or even adults when they say that. Like my. My husband, for example, who's a non-native speaker and who's like immersed in bilingualism could conjugate things wrong. Um, and someone might point that out. But when we point those things out, it creates this storm inside of people where it really hits at their confidence and their ability to speak the language because now they're self-conscious that they're not conjugating right or they're thinking about oh I might do it again and so we have found that for a lot of kids when um, they'll use a conjugation like no sabo and someone makes fun of them instead of gently providing the right conjugation it it creates almost like a desire to not speak Spanish um, or um, it creates a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of frustration because maybe they did want to communicate and now this happened. And so um, I talk about like the what's underlying, what is underneath no sabo, which is a lot of feelings regarding my lack of bilingualism skills or my lack of Spanish skills. And some people have kind of taken the label and tried to like own it, like, oh, I'm a no sabo kid. But I have yet to meet a person who identifies as no sabo who doesn't feel sad that they don't speak Spanish. And so it's hard to own a, a label that someone has given you that actually brings you shame and brings you guilt and doesn't feel good. So my hope is that with more education, we eliminate that label and we don't call our kids no salvo kids or we don't say we're raising no salvo kids and that instead we put the energy towards the systems that get in the way for us to not be able to raise bilingual children in the U.S. which is very frustrating that it's so hard to do so. Yeah it seems like it you know how people say like having an accent is a sign of bravery seems like mm -hmm. you know being a no salvo kid would, would be the same. 
you're tr- or mm-hmm. you know you're trying to learn a complex grammar yeah yeah and so yeah and so using in but, but it doesn't need to be labeled and I think that that's what I think people think they use it as a way to like shame you for your lack of Spanish skills but that's not the way to get someone to speak the language. You know, it's not going to make someone to like want to want to learn. You know, if you make fun of my French skills, because I took five years of French, I if I wouldn't want to communicate with you in French anymore. I'll use the languages that I feel really confident in, which are Spanish and English. And mm-hmm. so I think that sometimes parents and educators will say things like that or other peers, but they don't realize the impact. It's not just the comments. And we don't know, we never know how much that person has heard that comment. So maybe it was a one time that you said it, but maybe 50 other people have said it to them. And eventually no one likes to be criticized. Like that's just like human nature. No one likes to be poked at the things that they're not good. They don't feel good enough in. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's something so tied to your identity and mm-hmm. who you are, it can really be painful. It's so painful. I think about, you know, some kids have really um, Spanish like last names, like they're in Spanish or names, and sometimes they don't speak Spanish, and then the shame that comes with that, and the questioning of your identity, and you know, and I and I do like that in the U.S. we we talk about like being Latino doesn't mean that you have to speak Spanish, um, and there's many reasons why it can't mean that because it's it's very very hard to to raise bilingual children in the U.S. Um, I like that. And I also want there to be space for, but you can also be Latino and speak Spanish. Like we can have it all. Like we can have all kinds of variation and we don't have to pick sides. And if you are Latino that didn't speak Spanish as a child, you can learn it as an adult or you cannot learn it, um, you know, but there has to be room for it all instead of, you know, using labels and um, to to segregate us to other us you know and that's why I don't really I mean I don't I, there's there's no secret I don't like labels I don't like English language learner labels I don't I I don't like um any of those kind of labels that they use in school when it comes to language I I think that it creates a very harmful dynamic between children um and I don't like labels like English language learner, if we're not going to do Spanish language learners in, in dual language immersion schools, because if we're there to learn Spanish and English, why is only one body of students being labeled English language learner and the other one who might not speak Spanish isn't? I, I see a lot of um, injustices in that. Another thing that you um, mentioned on Instagram that I wanted you to talk about a little bit is the and something that uh, is really helpful for me to see all the time is the mental load of bilingual parenting. And it's something I've never seen anyone talk about before, but that I can really identify with. So can you just talk about that for a second and um, kind of what that means and why you post those stories? Yes, absolutely. So um, so one of the things I I post about, and it's a form of, like it's a visual like advocacy 
tool. Um, and so I post about the bilingual parenting mental load. And so that's kind of where my professional and personal life kind of like blend also on my platform um, because I am a social worker. And so I, I also have a private practice separate from Instagram. Um, and I know I have many shoes, many things come to mind. But um, so I think about, so what led me to post about the bilingual parenting mental load was kind of like, I'm hearing and seeing people struggle with attaining their goal of bilingualism. And what are the thoughts um, as a therapist? I know that our thoughts and feelings and behaviors are all connected. And that's what I incorporate in my own practice. And so what are the thoughts that are getting in the way of someone pursuing bilingualism was kind of like the first question that I was asking myself. And then how are, how are, how are those thoughts making that person feel and what is it causing? And so I kind of thought about that. Um, and then I decided to make it a visual and create the bilingual parenting mental load. And so what I do is I post everyday thoughts that a parent may have for a particular season of bilingual parenting. It could be like my kids, my kids speak uh, Spanish dominant and starting school. And then it's all the thoughts a parent may have might be like, oh, will the teacher be patient if my child uses a Spanish word instead of an English word? Will the teacher let me know if my child isn't communicating successfully in the classroom? Will my child be shamed because they speak Spanish? Will our family get in trouble if we speak Spanish at home instead of English at home? And it's kind of like those everyday thoughts that you have that sometimes are based on facts and or experiences or sometimes they're based just on your feelings and your fears and your um stress and lack of information around bilingualism and a lot of parents feel identified because um it's something that we don't talk about you know and it's kind of like we all know what the mental load of motherhood is and we all kind of like can relate to that but then this is kind of like a very specific mental load that if you're bilingual you're in a bilingual parenting journey you really can see yourself reflected on the visual right you so you're talking about bilingual parenting and the mental load for parents, but what about children? Do you think that there's also like a mental load for bilingual childing? And what sort of the, what sort of issues do you do you see bilingual children dealing with? So I actually have posted about the bilingual child mental load, um, not as frequently as the bilingual parent mental load um, because I think a lot of people can relate, and sometimes they have really small children, and I don't want them to like go into a panic. But there are a lot of, I know I don't want people to go into a panic I because this is not prescriptive. It can happen. Your child can have that. But the, but the hope is that you're having those conversations actively. So that way, if it does come up, then you know, know about it and then you can have a conversation. So what some of the things that I have... <laughs> Have posted about in terms of and have and have talked to bilingual children about is that there's they feel almost like pressure to pick a camp to pick Spanish or to pick English and there are not enough people in their lives rooting for their bilingualism rooting for both languages to exist at grandma's house and at aunt's house and at the mall and at the park it's always it there's always an underlying pressure to either speak english um or or speak english honestly and so i um have i mean that is really the pressure um no one there people aren't pressuring them to speak spanish they're pre being pressured to speak english and so a lot of times kids are confused especially like say my children who are um we are 
prioritizing Spanish completely, you know, and so that's a very big part of their identity and they feel very strongly connected. They have really good bonds with people in Spanish. And so then when someone expects them to like um, speak English or to be as well-versed as they are in Spanish to be two monolingual people, which is, is not possible, there are feelings of insecurities, like what some, some of the thoughts that I've shared before, it's like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I just speak English as well as so-and-so? Um, why, when I visit grandma, she tells me to not speak Spanish. I love speaking Spanish. Um, my friends at school are not being raised bilingual, but I'm bilingual and it's hard that I can't share both sides of me. Or will my friends feel weird if they come home and my mom's speaking Spanish to me? Do I need to tell my mom to speak English? Like there's a lot of different pressures and different thoughts that kids are also dealing with. And we don't always take the time to have those conversations with kids and we don't always prepare them or feel prepared ourselves to have those conversations. So that's kind of what prompted me to start sharing more about that um, because I want parents to feel empowered and confident in that no matter what happens, you can raise bilingual children and you can navigate the things that might come up that may seem like obstacles. You just have to know that this might happen. But some kids don't have that. You know, some kids feel perfectly secure in their bilingualism, but some kids don't. So we never know what our children are going to be. And so the more prepared, the better, I think. Yeah, I think you're so right because um my children have a very positive outlook on bilingualism but my son the other day when I was putting him to sleep he told me when am I going to meet other kids that are special like me and this is really funny because he's in a dual immersion program and he's around more bilingual children than ever and he's excited about that but then I was like what do you mean by special I mean you already have a bunch of like Rosari in your class you know a bunch of other kids that are also bilingual like you and he was like yeah but nobody speaks French too I've never met someone like me yeah. And then I was like, wow, okay. I was like, do you want to be around people like you? And he's like, that it would be really cool to have someone that has like a similar profile to mine that I could speak French, Spanish, or English, whatever comes to my mm -hmm. my head at that time with them, you know, like comfortably. And I was like, well, that's a minority, but we'll make sure to find people like that so that you get a sense of what that's like. So and he's six. He he is six years old. It's insane. It's insane they are so smart I mean I work for children um I've worked for children as young as three or three years old or in as you know all the way to 21 and older and so I kids are geniuses and they are so insightful and they pick up on everything and they pick up on our attitudes around multilingualism from early on like my kids can tell me who is happy or sad about them speaking Spanish like they can use that word. They can say, I don't think that they, that person, esa persona está muy triste cuando yo hablo español. And I already know like that's a person that is sending a negative language attitude towards our bilingualism. And that's not someone that I'm going to choose to be around because I don't want them to have those associations. I want a positive outlook. And the, and it's sad for a lot of kids because if you're not into immersion and you don't have access to that, then you're in a regular public school setting. And you have a lower chance depending on where you live like i live in syracuse um there's not my children are the only bilingual no there might be there is suspicion that there might be another one another bilingual child there's a suspicion they don't they, they child they, family i know it's not i know it's not confirmed but in our preschool we're the only bilingual family 
um, and there's suspicion that there might be another one, but we don't, they don't even know if it's confirmed, you know, and so it's so sad. <laughs> it's not conf- I don't know, it's not confirmed, we're going to find out. But um, it's so sad that our kids, you know, are not always represented when the world is multilingual. That's the part that is crazy, that our world is multilingual and our kids in the U.S. don't feel represented in their classroom unless they're in dual immersion. But even then, not always, you know, because they could be Spanish and, um, you know, and Chinese or Spanish and Italian or Spanish and something else at home. And it's not always the same in the classroom. And so it's very interesting. It's interesting to me to talk to kids about their bilingualism and hear how they feel and how they know if someone doesn't like it or they do like it. It's fascinating. I think it's funny you mentioned in the U.S., right, Lauren? Because I think our next question was going to be just that. You know, you think it's more difficult to raise bilingual children in the U.S. compared to perhaps other countries or other parts in the world? Yes, I think my parents. I mean, they love my platform and they root for me and they're like amazed that like I've I've done that and I love them to that. But they're like, wow, like it's so much harder for you and it wasn't for us. Like I was like, how did you guys do it? They're like, we sent you to school and we spoke Spanish at home and no one care about your English or no one care about your Spanish, like no one care about accents or whether you spoke English perfectly or Spanish perfectly. Like we just you were a kid and you were bilingual and that was amazing. And that was all that was being celebrated versus like this process in the U.S. is very convoluted. And there's so many dynamics at play, so many opinions, so many info, like the right information is so much misinformation. Um, And so I do think that the U.S. were very behind when it comes to multilingualism, which makes makes me so frustrated because I'm like, how, how? There, it would be so doable if we just restructure school so that kids were exposed to a language from the beginning instead of, I mean, my husband didn't take Spanish till he was like in seventh or eighth grade. And I'm like, do you want me to tell you where, where kids are at in seventh and eighth grade socially and emotionally? They're, they need function, they need value, they need a reason to speak this language. And so even though you're teaching them, they're not going to become fluent speakers unless there's a reason for them to do so, or they understand or have a personal connection to it. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's very hard to do it that route. Do some people become bilingual? Absolutely. Anyone can, you know, but would it be much easier if we started from the time that they were in pre-K? Absolutely. And that's what a lot of countries do. And it's a it's a really sad thing for me to have been educated bilingually my entire life and not really have that option right now for my child. Like that's something that I carry as a part of my bilingual parenting mental health. And that's a pain point for me, for sure. You mentioned some like misinformation. What do you think are some of the most damaging misconceptions about bilingualism in the U.S.? I think um, when people say um, bilingualism causes speech delays because they have a personal experience where their child um, had a speech delay and they were also raising them bilingual, um, I that's a, that's a myth. That's not true um, because monolingual kids have speech delays. And so if they only have one language and they can have a speech delay, it makes sense that anyone with any amounts of language would also could also have a speech delay. So bilingualism doesn't cause it. 
Um, I think that, or late talking, also not true. And, um, and I think that's very harmful because we're positioning bilingualism as something bad. So why would, if, if someone told me that if I did this, my child is going to be harmed or have something that is going to get in the way of them being able to, to communicate with me, I'm not going to pursue that. So if you tell a parent that, oh, if you are raising them bilingual, they're going to have a speech delay. They're not going to choose a speech delay for their child, even if it's something that can be worked with with a provider and something that they can get help for. They're not going to choose to harm their child. That's just like parenting, you know, 101. Um, and I think that's a really harmful one. And then I think the pressure that the, in, the misinformation that the only way to raise bilingual kids is... Um, one person, one language. I think that, that there's so many strategies and so many ways to go about raising bilingual kids. One person, one language is just a very popular strategy that has worked for a lot of people, but it's not actually the one that um, sustains, has the best success rate. Like it's not. It's target language at home. Prioritizing the target language is the strategy that, that according to the research, gives you more of an active bilingualism um, possibility outcome. We are not in charge of our kids' bilingualism. So, I mean, they could do, they can decide that they no longer want to be bilingual one day and not speak the language ever again. But we do know that there are strategies that can help support bilingualism and people are not always given the right information. And I think lastly in the U.S., the, the biggest misinformation would be that your child, um, if you don't teach your children English first, like focus on English and then you introduce another language, that then they will struggle at school or that they'll be behind from their peers. And I think that the reason they may struggle or be behind from their peers has nothing to do with the with bilingualism. It has to do with the ways that schools or or educators or like society goes about their bilingualism because there's just a negative association with speaking another language that's not English in the U.S. I mean, we saw it at the Grammys we, with the non-English, you know. I mean, it, there's just a negative association to speaking anything that is not English, unfortunately, even though it's 2023. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows the U.S. has no official language, but it's, you know, by default, as, mm -hmm. you know, assumed to be English, even if yeah. it's even if it's not official, it's still the priority. The fact, the priority. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I've also seen you talk a little bit about intersectional identities, such as race and class that influence bilingualism. So how, in your experience, how do different families experience bilingualism differently? And why is it important to you as an Afro-Latina to share your story on Instagram? Yeah. Oh, I love this question. It's so good. Um, thank you for asking. <laughs> I really love it. Um, I think that in the U.S. and I mean, like, I don't talk about. I am not saying that the U.S. is the only place that this happens, but because I live in the U.S., I like to talk about what I know and not make assumptions or generalizations about what happens in other places, unless. I live in that place, you know, and so that's why I say in the U.S. Sometimes people are like, oh, but, but I don't know because I don't live there. So okay. in the U.S., what we find and what I have heard and what I have experienced and what I have seen is that when a family is white and they're pursuing bilingualism and they're pursuing English and Spanish, English and something else, 
they are constantly praised for their efforts and for the things that they're doing, even if, because we have white Latinos, but even if, say, this, this family doesn't have a personal family connection to the language, they chose it, which I love. I love this for people. Please choose bilingualism. I love it. However, when we see a family, like when I was working in the Immigrant Students' Rights Project, and, and I have worked in other areas, when we see an immigrant family prioritize Spanish with the notion that English will come through school, they don't get the same praise, and they don't get the same support. They get pressures to, well, when are you going to speak English to them? Why aren't you learning English? Why aren't you doing this? You know, and so it's a very big difference um, in how they're treated. Um, we see this also in the play at the playground where we'll have a white mom who is fluent in Spanish speaking to their child and everyone, yep, everyone will be like, oh my God, that's so amazing. You're good. And you know, and they're always conversations. And then we'll have someone that looks like me, an Afro-Latina, Dominican, and people will be like, what language are you speaking? Why are you speaking another language? And we'll say things like that, that- Or assume you don't speak English. Yeah, that or assumes that I don't speak English. We'll say something in English because I'm speaking Spanish. And then I'm like, oh, joke's on you because now I'm gonna respond to whatever you said. But um, there's that dynamic that we see. Or um, you know, you'll have someone like me who is married to someone who's white. And then I have white Latino children. And then someone will presume that um, someone will presume that something's wrong or something is off, or they might presume that I'm the babysitter or that, you know, mm -hmm. they're not my kids, even though they look exactly like me, but with like white skin. <laughs> they have my same eyes, my nose, and everything. But they'll just their skin color will make someone assume that because I'm speaking Spanish, I'm the nanny. Or I'm, you know, I'm not their mom. And I think, and then I won't get the same support as the white mom who's doing the same thing I'm doing mm -hmm. because of the way that I look. And so I love talking about this. Um, when I grew up in the Dominican Republic, everyone looked like me or similar to me. Um, we all had, you know, the Dominican sun, we had tans, we all like, you know, we, we, we were all the colors of the rainbow. And I, think and my friends spoke different languages not just Spanish and English they spoke you know we have French Creole like we have so much in the in the DR you know even though we are a little island and so it's such a very and we're also very I, in my experience when I lived in the DR um my culture is very warm and very friendly and very family oriented and very supportive um and in the U.S. there's like this wall that kind of comes up when someone like me say is speaking Spanish to my children in public someone will presume I'm talking about them when literally my four-year-old is telling me that he needs to go to the bathroom mm -hmm. and I'm glad that he's saying it to me in Spanish so you don't have to know that but <laughs> we'll assume that it's about them um or they'll want to be like oh what is he saying and it's like we don't need to be like that. You know, we can give the same support to all families. I want to support anyone that wants to pursue bilingualism, that wants to bilingual parents, that is doing the same thing that I'm doing. We're all having the same kind of mental loads. We're not, we can't all relate because with race, there comes privilege, whether we 
are where we're talking about it or whether we're not, there's an underlying factor in race. For white, if you're white, you have more privilege. And um, it plays out in every area of our lives. And it's something that we need to talk about. And it's not to shame people. It's not to make people feel bad. It's just for you to be aware that that might be something that happens to someone else. And I think that the more we're aware of what other people's experiences are, the more empathetic we can be and the more we can work so that everyone feels included and everyone feels that there really is a seat at the table for them. And that's my goal. And that's why I talk about all these things, um, all, all these intersections. And then our kids who are like my kid, bilingual, bicultural, biracial, they also get to have someone who is advocating for them in the the what makes them special and it's kind of like like what your um four-year-old said um yeah. about yeah six-year-old um six said, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah six-year-old four-year-old <laughs> six about um someone special like me you know and i think that our kids always want to be represented and identify with someone and so that's what I want. You know, that's what that's why I think these conversations are so important. I want kids to feel like there are other people special like them and we can connect with those people. But also we can connect with anyone because everyone is special and we can always connect. Such a good point. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to school again. <laughs> yeah. How do you think that the school system promotes or impit bilingualism? And what advice do you have for parents that are navigating the school system with a multilingual child? Oh, this is a, this is a good one. This is a good, <laughs> great question. Um, okay, so I I mean, there's I need to think. We're telling it. Um, I think that schools. Well, I think okay. So we'll start with the top of the problem, in my opinion. Um, schools have parents identify the language, they, they have them fill out something that's called a home language survey, which if the home language survey was meant to document information to get life stats, you know, I have 300 female five-year-olds and, you know, out of those 300, 50 speak Spanish and at home or have access to Spanish language outside of our school system. I would love it. I would love it if we're just like documenting, we're tracking. But what happens is when some, when parents, when parents fill out the home language survey and they say that they speak a language other than English at home, it triggers a system that now needs to evaluate your child's English because the presumption is that if they speak another language at home that's not English, their English is bad and we need to fix it. We need to evaluate, we need to, we need to do extra testing, we may need to label them English language learner, and we need to have them take a yearly test, and if they don't test out, they can have that label removed, or they need special services, and I'm not against special services, um, it's part of, you know, your educational rights, I just don't think that we that that supports bilingualism because in my experience and as a social worker and also in my conversations with teachers they have told me that they have had I have a kindergarten teacher that I'm very close to and she's always always making me feel like 
how interesting this is because she will have five-year-olds who are monolingual English speakers come to her kindergarten classroom not knowing what a paper is, a crayon is, or a ruler. They've never seen it. They don't know the word for it. They have no idea. When she says, take out, go grab the crayons, they all, they, a bunch of them stay seated because they have no idea what a crayon is. And then you'll have a bilingual child who maybe doesn't know the word crayons, but has seen a crayola and it has un crayon, has used it. And we will think that something is wrong with them because they don't know that word, even though the monolingual kid stayed seated and didn't go for the crayon either. And so like, that's the way, the part that I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And I think it really gets in the way because the minute you label someone's child for their bilingualism, you are othering them. And you're also sending a message to the child that, well, the other kids don't have to go to another special classroom. They get to stay. So I need to go work on my English because something's wrong with my English. I can't just learn my English with the rest of the kids in the general education classroom. And kids, like we were just talking, are very insightful. And I think that people assume they don't know what it is. But kids do notice and they do know they might not have the words to say like, oh, that's my, you know, special education teacher or that's my um, ESL teacher. They don't have that. They don't have that lingo, but they know that they're going to a special place because something, something, they need more of something. Um, so then you have teachers telling parents that they need to speak English at home. Um, that's very harmful, especially if, even if the, if the parent doesn't speak English, how are they supposed to speak English to their child? But even if they did, it's the parent's personal choice, whether they want to do that or not. You know, my parents didn't speak English and they helped me with my English homework every single day. And it supported my bilingualism because I would read my homework and then I would turn around and tell my parents what I needed to do and tell, and then they would help me. And I thought, and that was such, such a cool thing that I was like, they were still involved. I but it made me use my bilingual skills of like reading, processing, and then communicating in a different language. And I and I thought that that was so, you know, helpful. Now that I reflect back on it, I'm like, oh, that's so awesome. Like, that's a good way to maintain someone's bilingualism is like putting it into practice in another language. And that way you're still learning those academic skills. And so I think schools miss the mark in educating kids. Like I went to my preschool, my preschooler school, and I did a whole little thing about that we're bilingual. What does it mean to be bilingual? What does it mean to be monolingual to these three-year-olds? And they understood. They were like, oh, okay. So he's bilingual, you're bilingual, and then we're monolingual. We speak one language, but one day we could learn another language, and then we would be bilingual. Like three-year-olds could have that conversation. We could be incorporating this conversation in the classroom, you know? And so I do think that schools, there's a lot of opportunities in schools but we're missing the mark right now when it comes to how do we educate kids on bilingualism and multilingualism. We make assumptions that everyone speaks English at home or everyone celebrates. Actually, this was my favorite. Um, the other day I was talking to a mom, like obviously the holidays just passed um, last month. So El Dia de los Reyes, we were talking about this because um, kids will believe that Santa is real for a really long time, but bilingual bicultural kids oftentimes don't believe or know that Los Reyes aren't real and it's harder to implement that tradition in the U.S. because none of their friends 
are talking about Los Reyes. And it made me so sad. Like I had never even thought about that. But I was like, oh my God, it's true because I grew up in the DR and Los Reyes was like everything. That was my Santa Claus. And I believed in them for a long time, but my kids probably won't, even if I incorporate the tradition in my home, because their peers won't have Los Reyes. And there's no one having that conversation with them actively that different kids celebrate different things. And, you know, for some Latin American countries, Los Reyes, um, I think most of them, um, is celebrated. And yeah, so it made me really sad. But these are the kind of dynamics that are at play at school or at play for our kids. Sorry, really long answer, but no, no. <laughs> no, I, I'm with you with Los Reyes Magos and my house is a big deal. Like my kids don't know about Papa Noel barely. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have we both are a huge deal over here. Our kids are getting too many presents. <laughs> I feel like this is like bilingual. Uh, not even bilingual. Yeah, well, I guess bilingual. Bilingual parenting method. My kids are have too many traditions, too many things that we're celebrating. Yeah. Trying to incorporate both. You can't eliminate any of them. Yeah. You can't because it's part of their identity, you know, and you want them to feel that little connection, you know. And for me, it's like I want my kids to be able to go back to the DR, hang out with my friends' kids, and be able to talk about the same traditions, but yeah. even in a different country. And traditions connect us, and I want that connection. And it's, I just wish there was room. We're we're paving the way to create room, but um, it's a it's slow process yeah. but I wish that we were more aware of all of that for sure yeah super quick anecdote we just moved back from Europe and it was the Sith we started traveling the Sith of January which is Reyes Magos mm-hmm. and my son was expecting to have presents in their new house that had no they didn't even have furniture and he's still <laughs> to this day saying what happened to los Reyes Magos like why didn't we get presents and I was like you just got Papa Noel and he was like bah what's up with the Reyes Magos and I was like maybe we just changed house so much that they couldn't find us and he's still mad about it a month later so navigating that as a parent I guess should be added to our mental load too (laughs) that's for sure It's, it's tough you know and so and I think about this and I think that you know I don't blame parents who are not on my legal parenting like journey for not knowing what we go through but I do wish that there was more conversation about it. One of the things that I did, um, I dislike obviously the home language survey and the process that and how we go about it. I um, did a post that if I if a home language survey was created by a social worker, this is what a social worker would do. And I would pair people like I would because I know that bilingual parenting is so hard. If I knew that in a classroom there were 10 kids who also speak Spanish at home, I would create little pockets of communities between them because the more kids see themselves represented, the more they can shine. And so um, it's like one of my favorite posts. I might bring it back this year um, when I talk about home language survey because people usually start filling them out in March, like March, April, May time um, for registration for kindergarten. And that's coming out for preschool. Yeah. And so um, it's a very, I mean, and not every area sees it in a negative way and processes are different area to area, but um, it's something that parents don't really know. They don't really understand. They just think like, oh, but we do speak Spanish at home. I'm not going to say that we don't. Yeah. Um, and that's also not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, be aware that there's a process that goes with that and be aware that it might take your advocacy. You might have to discuss how you're not concerned for your child's bilingualism 
um, if you're not concerned. And so the school probably shouldn't be concerned either. And so it's a larger conversation, but I really wish that that information, if I knew that there were a thousand kids in a school that all spoke Spanish at home or had a Spanish speaking mm -hmm. parent, I would like to see them connected. I would like to see them create community within the schools because I see schools as a community and we can create even little communities in them. And that would be a way where schools could support bilingualism by saying, we have so many bilingual students in this, in this school and we wanna make sure that even, because not every school has a dual language program, that even though we don't have like dual language program that we're creating a community so that you guys have a space to speak Spanish whenever you want, you know, whether that is like a little Spanish club or whatever, you know, from the beginning, not when they are like in middle school, but like from the time they're little connecting the parents together, because a lot of times parents are isolated, they don't have a community. Very isolated. You know? Yeah, it's very isolating um, to to parents sometimes. And sometimes you don't even know, like, you're so busy with life and like cooking and prepping and the day to day to day. It's hard to think about your need for socializing. Yeah, the laundry. Always. Always. Um, it's so hard to think about your need for socializing and your need to socialize bilingually. And so um, I would love to see that in the school spot. We're not there yet. Not in the U.S. So you're kind of touching on it. And this is a broad question, I know, but... <laughs> What would be your advice overall for bilingual parents out there about anything, however you want to take that question? Yes. My advice would be to speak your language unapologetically. Um, no matter where you go, no matter who's there, speak to your child in the language that that doesn't get as much exposure. So like if it's Spanish in the U.S., Speak Spanish all the time, all the time, all the time. Make it a language that your children love, that they feel connected to, that they feel happy in, and continue that process. Even when your children come home and say things in English and go through a time where they might seem to prefer English, they're only preferring English because they're having so many awesome experiences in English and it makes sense that they feel really connected. But we can you can continue to expose them to opportunities where they feel that same feeling, that same good feeling in um, in Spanish, if that's kind of like the language you're doing. So, and that is, and, and then that kind of segue in my brain. Um, I think about one of the things that we see is that kids report that they feel in English, basically, like they feel feelings in English and they feel their emotional intelligence, their emotional vocabulary is like really developed in English because it's part of the the school dynamic, the socializing, you know, you learn so much. And so what we need to do is kind of find opportunities to help them develop that emotionality in the language of our choice. So emotionality, for example, in Spanish, and that's um that's something that I feel really, really passionate about um, because I've had many, many, many adults report that they just, it came to a point where they just felt feelings more in English and they didn't have other than like, I love my parents or like, I feel connected to my parents. They didn't have 
feelings, feelings in the, the words to express their feelings in Spanish. And that's a huge gap that, that makes them prioritize English because they feel like they can be them and they can communicate much better in it. And so we need to, we need to bridge that gap. We need to continue to, to do that. So that would be my best advice. So just to kind of wrap it up in a really positive note, what would you say is your favorite thing about being a bilingual parent? Um, I love that question. Um, Okay, so my favorite thing about being a bilingual parent is that I can love my child in Spanish and I can love them in English and that I can hear, like hearing them express and connect with people in both languages is my favorite favorite thing to witness and to know that I made that happen like I made that happen my husband made that happen and if we had not put our heart into it it wouldn't have happened and so that's my favorite it's just knowing that connection is the heart of bilingualism and that I'm creating that connection every day I'm do I'm the one that gives them a positive association to bilingualism and that's what they'll remember and seeing that play out with actions hearing the words is amazing so I love it yeah that's that's totally great. it's so beautiful to see our daughter be so confident in another language with other people mm-hmm. really nice yeah okay. all right um, I guess we will leave it there for today, but of course we will be back soon. Thank you so much, Deandra. Uh, yeah. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank Talk you so much. Way. If you ever have questions about us or questions about the podcast, go to home and our website at multilingualmamaspodcast.com and click on the link for questions. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned for more episodes of Multilingual Mamas.